Today's scripture reading comes from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will... There you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. My name is Aaron. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Exilic and I welcome you to our service today. And at the top of every year, we do a series on the DNA of our church. And the DNA consists of three things, our unique name, our mission, and our vision. And for the past few weeks, we've taken a look at our name and our vision. And today, we're going to be wrapping up the series by taking a look at our vision once more. Uh, I said this last week, but sometimes the words mission and vision are used interchangeably, but they are two different things. Your mission is what you want to do. Your vision, however, is who you want to be. So now that we're doing our mission, who do we want to be? How do we as a church, how do we want to shape you? How do we want to mold you? How do we want to form you as disciples of Jesus? And if you take a look at the inside front cover of your bulletin, uh, there you'll see our mission and our vision statement. Let me read this for us. Our vision for you is to be 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. Uh, Again, I said this last week, but the reason why we didn't just write disciples who think critically and act positively, but we wrote 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. The reason why we inserted the word 21st century is because on the one hand, our beliefs never change. So from the first century to the 21st century, our core beliefs, our doctrines, our creeds, they have not changed, and they should not change. But the world that we live in today, it has changed, and it looks radically different from the first century world. And so the question is, how do we follow Jesus with these ancient creeds in our modern world? How do we think about the age that we live in, and how do we act positively with the people that are in our lives? And today I want to wrap up by talking about our jobs once more. And the reason for that is because I would say that 70 to 80% of our waking hours are spent at our jobs. But not only is 70 to 80% of our waking hours spent at our work, but most of our time then, our energy and our talents are also devoted to our work. And the point of our work is to help other people. Now that sounds really, really obvious, doesn't it? The point of our work is to help other people, but it's actually not that obvious. And the reason why I say that is because the dominant mindset that we have when we choose a profession or we pick a job is, how is this job, how is this profession, how is it going to help me? How is this job gonna help me thrive? How is it gonna help me flourish? How is this job gonna give me the lifestyle that I want? How is this job gonna give me the security that I long for. And only secondarily, if at all, do we think about our professions and our jobs as a way of helping other people. 
And a part of the reason why we think the way that we do is because we are all very ambitious. You would not be living in New York City if you weren't just a little bit ambitious. So the big question for today is, is ambition just a bad thing or can ambition also be a good thing? And when you take a look at scripture, the answer seems to be yes. That it is both a bad thing and a good thing. But it all depends on why you're doing it, why you're ambitious, and who you are being ambitious for. So there's selfish ambition where you are just ambitious for yourself, and there's also selfless ambition where you are being ambitious, ambitious for the sake of others and the glory of God. And so here's the question. How do we differentiate between the two? What are some signs? Well, if you take a look with me at verses 14 to 15, here is one sign of selfish ambition. Verse 14 and 15 say, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. One sign that you might suffer from selfish, envy, uh, selfish ambition is if you suffer from envy. Shakespeare referred to envy as a green-eyed monster. And Thomas Aquinas referred to envy as a sorrow over another person's good. Dante referred to envy as a blindness because you can cl see, clearly see what other people have, but you can't see what you have. They're a winner. I'm a loser. They're successful and killing it in life. I'm unsuccessful. They're happily married with kids. I'm single and lonely. Their life on Instagram looks really, really great and happy. My life on Instagram, kind of, kind of boring. So Dante referred to envy as a type of blindness because you can see what other people are like, but you can't really see yourself. If you turn on the first page of your bulletin, I want to read for you a quote from Sam Storms and the way that he defines envy. And Storms says, envy is the resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another. An advantage that you are convinced ought rightfully to be yours. But why should someone else's success or promotion or praise provoke envy in our hearts? Why not joy instead? The answer is because we don't want others to appear better than ourselves. We are convinced that we are more worthy and more deserving of the advantage. And perhaps this is the reason why when someone succeeds in life in our circle, and by the way, it is always someone in our circle. Rarely are we envious of people outside of our circle. But perhaps this is the reason why when someone is successful in our circle, there is a small part of us that actually dies. And perhaps this is also the reason why when someone in our circle that is relatively successful actually falls on their face and fails, there's a small part of us that finds it oddly comforting. But envy is not something that should comfort us at all because of the havoc it results in our life. And so if you take a look at Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14 says that envy rots the bones. 
In other words, it disintegrates us from the inside out, and it is completely self-destructive. Tim Challies, on the first page of your bulletin, has a really interesting insight on what envy is like compared to other sins. And Challies says that envy is unique among the sins in that you never, ever enjoy it. Envy never brings any satisfaction. If you commit the sin of adultery, you enjoy the fleeting pleasures of the flesh. If you commit the sin of gluttony, you get to enjoy the taste of food while it slides down your throat. These are very fleeting and fleshly pleasures, but they are pleasures still. Envy only makes you more miserable than you were before. And when you suffer from envy, envy has a nasty habit of forcing us to play a game that we can never win. And that game is the comparison game. And when you play the comparison game because of the emptiness that you feel that leads to a curiosity over what is not your own, when you play the comparison game, you are never the winner. You are always the loser. Contentment ends when comparison begins. And the thing about contentment, and perhaps what's most tragic about it, is that when we are uh, uh, envious, what, that, what we're basically saying is that we are really dissatisfied with our life. But what's even more sad about envy is that when we are envious, we are not only saying that we are dissatisfied with our life, but when we experience envy, what we're really saying is that we are dissatisfied with God. That we do not like the way that he is running this world and that we do not like the way that he is running our lives. This is why James goes as far as to say that when you suffer from envy, it is demonic. <laughs> now that just sounds so harsh, doesn't it? Perhaps even hyperbolic. How can envy, mere envy, be demonic? And because basically what you're saying is, I don't trust you anymore and I don't like the way that you're doing things and that I ought to be in the driver's seat instead uh, of you. And envy almost always is in tandem with this thing called selfish ambition. And envy points to selfish ambition as a sort of pseudo-alternative savior to come and rescue us from the emptiness that we feel. And so if you look at verse 16, verse 16 says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there's a tandem, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And the word disorder here can also mean confusion. So what this verse is saying is that when you have the combination of both envy and selfish ambition to rescue you from your envy, there you will have disorder and confusion in your life. Now disorder and confusion about what? What this verse is talking about is a disorder and confusion about what can really fulfill you, what can give you the validation and the, and the justification that you are looking for in your life. And I'll give you an example of this. So my daughter Logan, my oldest daughter Logan is actually turning three this month. She was born on leap year, February 29th. So technically she's turning three quarters, not even one. <clears throat> Whenever she does something that she thinks is remarkable, like makes something out of Legos, or she wears a pretty dress, you know what she inevitably says every time? Daddy, look, look. She says that every single time. Daddy, daddy, look. Look, and she has her mouth wide open. 
And whenever she does that, I think of two things. Number one, that's really, really cute. But number two, that is so human. How human. The need for approval, acceptance, validation, justification, that, life, that my life matters. And just so you know that this is not a toddler thing, but an adult thing also, and that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This last week, uh, I was uh, carrying number two. I had her strapped on me. And uh, we were crossing the street, and it's not uncommon for people to like smile at her when they see Hayden or to like start up a conversation when they see her. But this particular day last week, I was crossing the street just one block away from here, and I see two people uh, walking past me. And one of them goes, oh my gosh. And she starts elbowing her friend to say, look at that baby. And I look at who it is, and it is Amy Schumer. <laughs> and I thought, Hayden, that's Amy Schumer. <laughs> and I stopped in the middle of the road, and I turned around, and I just had to do a double take because Amy Schumer thought my daughter was cute. <laughs> one hour later, I called my mother. And I said, Mom, this movie star? You don't know who she is, but it doesn't matter. This movie star, she thinks that your granddaughter is cute. You know what my mom said? Really? A movie star? How human. How human it is for this longing for approval, acceptance, recognition, that our lives are special and that they matter. You see, we all suffer from what Timothy Dwight, the former president of Yale, would call the love of distinction. The love of distinction. And I know a little bit about that. Almost 10 years ago, I was 30 years old. And some of you are doing the math right now. <laughs> the reason why I say uh, I, was almost, I was 30 years old is because I was experiencing what many of you are experiencing today, and that is a quarter-life crisis. I wanted to make my mark in this world, and I wanted to do something with my life. And so I wanted to start a church. And so I approached our presbytery, which is our governing overseeing body, and I said, I want to start a church. And you, do you know what they unanimously said? They said, no. You're not married yet. You don't have a clear enough vision for how you want to do this. You don't even know where you want to do this. And I wish I could tell you that when I heard their feedback, I received it very humbly and graciously, but I did not. I said some things back to them that are unconscionable to me today, so much so that I don't even know who that guy was, nor do I ever want to know who that guy was ever again. But I felt like the rug had been tucked, tugged away from underneath my feet and I was lost. And I questioned whether I should even be in ministry altogether. And so I did what most young people do when they don't know what to do. I went back to school for yet another degree. And I went back to school and I worked as a cashier at a car wash part-time, which I was terrible at, by the way. I did manual labor 
from my friend's dad's uh, warehouse where I would mop the floor mostly by myself to clean the flood from Hurricane Sandy. And I was a sports writer. And there are two things that I learned during this desert time for me, which seemed like forever, by the way. Number one, just because you have the right calling in life, it doesn't mean it's the right timing. I had the gifts and I had the talents, but just because I had the right calling, it didn't mean it was the right timing. And the reason for that is because my character had to catch up to my talents. Just because you're gifted and talented at something, it doesn't mean that it's your time yet. But there's a second thing I learned during this desert experience, and that is the theme from our fall retreat this past fall, and that is that weakness is the way. That the kind of people that God likes and is fond of are the kind of people that walk with a limp instead of a strut. That the kind of people that God likes are the kind of people that understand that it is better, actually, not to put your best foot forward, but actually your worst foot forward. I want to read you something uh, on the first page of your bullets again from Andrew Murray. And Murray says, the Christian often tries to forget his weakness. God wants us to remember it, to feel it deeply. The Christian wants to conquer his weakness and to be freed from it. God wants us to rest and even rejoice in it. The Christian mourns over his weakness. Christ teaches his servant to say, I take pleasure in infirmities. The Christian thinks his weaknesses are his greatest hindrance in the life and service of God. God tells us that it is a secret of strength and success. It is our weakness, heartily accepted and continually realized that gives our claim and access to the strength of him who has said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. This church was not built upon talent and a lot of financial investment. This church was built upon pain, weakness, and failure, precisely the way that God likes it. And if you're going to have a fulfilling life and do anything with your life, the first thing that you need to know is that if you want to be fulfilled and have a fulfilling life, that you must first have an empty life. That you must be empty of your pride, your ego, your vain conceit, and your selfish ambition. And once you are empty of yourself, that is precisely the moment that God can actually use you and you can actually have a fulfilling life. Because there is a good ambition. There is a positive, selfless ambition. In Romans 15, 20, Paul says, I have made it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. Now, you've been here long enough to know that when Paul says that he has made it his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known, he is not saying that everyone needs to be a pastor or a missionary. You know that. But what Paul is saying is that we all must live for something bigger than ourselves, for the glory of God, and for the sake of other people. In other words, you will not be discontent with the size of your platform if you are busy building another person's platform, most of all, um, that of God's himself. And this is what the difference is, in, according to James chapter 3, between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. 
earthly wisdom is when we are living for ourselves and we suffer from selfish ambition. Heavenly ambition is when we have selfless ambition and are living for the sake of other people. And there is no better picture of what heavenly wisdom looks like and selfless ambition looks like than of God himself. There's a reason why we put Philippians 2 into our affirmation of faith today. Because in Philippians 2, it tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition. And the reason why we should do nothing out of selfish ambition is because Jesus Christ, although he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature not of a king, but taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and he gave himself for us. His ambition was not for his own thriving, but his ambition was for our thriving. His ambition was not for his own flourishing, but his ambition was actually to die on a cross and to deflourish in order that we might live. He died for our vain conceit and our selfish ambition and the pursuit of our own tiny kingdoms to the neglect of his. That is why he has come. And if God was sorrowful about anything, the one thing that he was sorrowful about was not the possessions that we have that he doesn't have, but if that God was sorrowful about one thing, it was that he did not possess us. His ambition was for you. And when you understand that he made his ambition to live and to die for you selflessly, how can we not be ambitious for him? Now, if we're going to be ambitious for him, we need to have a renewed vision of what that could potentially look like. I like the way that the British missionary William Carey once said it when he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. So the question is, how do we do that? What does it look like? Well, it takes a renewed vision and a renewed imagination. And when I thought about that, I, I thought about one person, one member of our community uh, she is a lawyer, a graduate of Princeton, and so she's really, really smart. But this member of our community is not only really smart, but she also has something that we all lost when we became an adult, and that is a non-atrophied imagination. Every year, this lawyer takes time off of work to fly across the country to San Diego to attend Comic-Con. Now, I don't know if she dresses up for Comic-Con, but what I do know is that every year when a new Marvel movie comes out, she'll re-watch all the old Marvel movies in anticipation for the new Marvel movie. And one day as we were talking and she was sharing about her work and how she didn't really love the work that she was doing, I said to her, have you ever thought about writing nonfiction? Clearly, you're really, really smart. Clearly, you have a vivid imagination. You're definitely a good writer if you're a lawyer. Have you ever thought about writing nonfiction? And I told her that just a few months ago, it was the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death. And you know what? Since then, 50 years ago, no one has filled in his shoes. And so I told her, why can't that be you? Why does it have to be somebody else? Why can't you be the one that is the next C.S. Lewis? You know what she said to me? I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this. You know what she said to me? She said, now that you mention it, people do like reading my emails. <laughs> 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 I 
And so I poured her, I poured her a, a shot of McKellen 25 that, got, that I got as a gift because I know she likes scotch. And we talked about what this could potentially look like. And I told her, I'm not asking you to quit your job, but I am asking you to think about doing this on the side. And the reason why I share this story is oftentimes the only vision that people have given our lives is one or two things. And the reason why you were only given those two options is because it will give you the most amount of money, comfort, security, and respect in society. So you need to just do this or this. And no one else has given us a vision of what else we could potentially do for the sake of other people and not just ourselves. I like the way that P.T. Barnum put it in The Greatest Showman when he said that men suffer from too little imagination, not too much. I love that. When you realize that Jesus was ambitious for you, you cannot not be ambitious enough for him if it truly is all about him and what he has done uh, for us. God has not called you to be awesome. He has called you to be humble and wise. And when you are humble and wise, you will do awesome things. But the way that we do awesome things and the way that we become vessels to do awesome things is first remembering not to believe the hype, particularly the hype that we tell ourselves. And to remember who we really are, that our work doesn't define us, that we don't need justification from anything else because we have been approved and accepted by God and that is more than enough. And that frees us to sleep at night well underneath God's smile. Let's pray together. Lord, liberate us and free us from our selfish ambition and for kicking you out of the driver's seat and help us to have a selfless ambition where we are here to help others and to serve you. Give us a greater vision of what could potentially be. Help us not to waste our lives, but help us to live uh, for the glory of God and for the sake of other people. In Jesus' name, amen.